Good morning. Welcome to Eastern Shore Baptist Church's podcast. My name is Stuart Davidson. I'm so thrilled that you have decided to tune in this week. I certainly hope that today's message will be both encouraging to you, but also I pray that it will be convicting. You can find out more about our church by visiting www.myesbc.net. God bless you and look forward to seeing you soon at church. I don't know if you remember last January, the very first Sunday of January, we started the book of Luke. We made it eight chapters in a year. That's pretty good. That's not bad. We've still got a long way to go. So I hope you like the book of Luke because it's all about Jesus. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the next year. A lot about Jesus. Why? Because he's the most important part. And so I hope that you enjoy the continuation of this series according to the book of Luke. Now, how many of you know what these little gems are. Yeah. Have you ever needed jumper cables? Go ahead. Raise your hand, guys. Yes, we all have. My very first date with my wife involved jumper cables. I was 17 years old. Angela was 16 years old. We went to Eastdale Mall in Montgomery because that's where kids went in Montgomery back in those days. And we went and saw a movie. It was, uh, it was a terrible movie. It, it, it had Keanu Reeves in it. And the movie was, uh, I think it was called A Walk in the Clouds. Do you ever, do y'all see, some of you have seen this unfortunate film. It was horrible. I, I don't recommend it. I'm just telling you from my personal experience. But anyway, we, uh, we went and saw that movie. And uh, we went back out to my car and sadly, I had left my lights on, and it was raining. It was just, a t- as far as first dates go, it really set the bar very low. And I could only go up from there. So I'm thankful that Angela kind of hung out with me. But when, when we got to the car, I popped open the trunk, and I pulled out jumper cables. Now, jumper cables are great when your car is dead. But you know what you got to have in order to jump the car off? Another car. That's exactly right. And back in 1995, we didn't exactly have cell phones to call, so I had to run down a stranger in the rain at East Elm Mall in Montgomery. This was not a safe thing to do, by the way. But thankfully, there was a stranger who saw this poor teenage kid out with another poor teenage girl and had mercy on us, and he pulled his car up. Now, do you know that just by pulling the car up to another car doesn't jump the other car off? Did you know this? There has to be a connection, which is why you need jumper cables. You've got to connect in a particular way in order from the power to flow from one vehicle to another vehicle. It's all about connection. You've got to connect, and you've got to connect the correct way. Well, friend, power doesn't just come from one car to another through jumper cables, but it also comes from one person connecting to another person spiritually. Power can come through connection. Now, our ultimate power source, of course, is God. God is our ultimate power source. But you know what? We've got to stay connected to God, and we've got to connect the right way to God in order that we would receive His power. And so this morning, using the story of Jairus, Jairus' daughter, and this woman with a bleeding disorder, I want you to fill in these two blanks. I want you to connect to Jesus. Why? To find hope and to find healing. 
This morning, that's what it's all about. We want to connect to Christ so that we can find hope and so that we can find healing. It's all about connection and connection in the correct way. Now, this morning, if you will, you can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56, to give you a little bit of a perspective or context on where we have been. And Jesus has just crossed the lake, the Sea of Galilee, with his disciples. If you remember, in the middle of that crossing, there was this huge storm that blew up, and Jesus calmed the storm with just a word. Peace be still. And everything was quiet. Eventually, as they left the friendly side of the lake and they went to the unfriendly side, you remember the Decapolis? Those 10 cities, those 10 Roman cities all piled up together. When they reached the Decapolis on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, if you recall, there was a demon-possessed man who's there and greets Jesus. And Jesus, after he calms the storm, he runs the demon out of the man. And he takes all those demons. You remember the name of the demon? It was Legion, remember? For we are many. And so Jesus takes all of these demons and he places them into a herd of pigs. And these pigs go run off of the cliff and kill themselves. It's a pretty amazing story. And again, when Jesus gets back into the boat, and they leave the Decapolis side. They go back across to the Sea of Galilee where they gather at Capernaum and where they were met by a large crowd. And when they had gathered there to greet Jesus and to see Jesus, there were lots of other little boats but uh, probably around the lake where Jesus was and people that had witnessed the, the stilling of the storm. They had gone back into report and reported how Jesus had, had dealt with the storm. The crowds were very expectant to see Jesus do all these incredible miracles. So when Jesus gets back across to the Sea of Galilee on Capernaum, he's greeted by potentially thousands of people which is where we encounter this man named Jairus. And so this morning, that's where we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 8, verse 40. If you want to, you can read along with me. I'm reading today from the, the ESV. It says this in verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were waiting on him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house for he had an only daughter who was about 12 years old. By the way, you want to, <clears throat> excuse me, highlight that word 12 years old, those words. That's a, a very significant part of the story. And the reason why Jairus came, it concludes, because she was dying. His only daughter, who was 12, is dying. As Jesus, so Jesus does what anybody would do, he agrees. And as he went, the people press around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for how long? 12 years. And though she had spent all of her life, all of her livings, seeking doctors and physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing all around you. But Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out of me. Do we see a connection? We see a lady who is desperate need of connection. She gets close to Jesus and in faith touches Jesus. And all of a sudden power is moved from one source to another source. All about connection. All done in the correct way. 
But Jesus said, someone touch me, for I perceive power has gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Verse 49. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house, Jairus' house, came to him and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. By the way, isn't that said a little cold? I mean, does not, y'all feel that? Can you imagine walking up to Jesus, desperate for him to come and save your 12-year-old daughter, your only daughter, your only child? And, and then all of a sudden, as this miracle has been given out, someone walks up to you and says, your daughter's dead. Seems a little cold, a little sterile. But Jesus, when he heard this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the father and the mother of the child. All were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but she is sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was really dead. But taking her by the hand and calling, child, arise. And her spirit returned. If you're going to ask me about how that works, don't, because I don't know. Her spirit returns, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them not to tell anyone what had happened. Is this not like a crazy story? It's a crazy story. It's wild. So let's do something. Let's follow Jairus. Let's follow Jairus' footsteps and connect to Jesus in this story. Roman numeral one is this. We meet a desperate man. We meet a desperate man. We actually discover quite a bit about Jairus in this passage. We know that he was a religious man. He was a man who knew the law. He was a man that ruled in the synagogue. This was not some guy that sat in a pew. This was a guy that was a leader. He was visible. He had power, he had prestige, he had authority. We also discover that he was a dad, a passionate dad even, a dad who loved his children, a dad who loved his daughter. We also discover he has a 12-year-old daughter who was dying, she was sick. We don't know her ailment, but we know that every minute counts. Every second counts. And so he was desperate coming to Jesus to fix this problem. Desperation, by the way, does things to us, doesn't it? Have you ever been desperate? Have you ever been desperate? It pushes us into decisions that otherwise we would never have made. Chances are that Jairus had heard about Jesus casting out demons, quieting the storms, raising the dead, and while potentially doubtful in Jesus' ability, his daughter was not getting well. His daughter was not getting well. In fact, Jairus' daughter was getting far worse with every tick of the clock, or in their case, every movement of the sundial. And there was no one else that could help her. The doctors were mystified. Chances are, you know what this guy did? He probably went to his friends at the synagogue. He probably went to the Pharisees or, God forbid, the Sadducees. And he said, hey, my daughter is dying. 
Why don't you come, lay hands on her, anoint her, let's baptize her, let's do something to try to fix this problem. And do you know what? It did not work. None of it did. The doctors couldn't make her well. The Pharisees couldn't make her well. The prayers of the synagogue were not making her well. So he did what any dad would do. He reached out to the one person, by the way, that he wasn't even supposed to reach out to. He probably went to all these other people first, and in a move of complete desperation, he says, you know what? I'm going to give this Jesus character a try. I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to see if Jesus really is who he says he is. Sometimes desperation leads us on a path straight to God, doesn't it? Have you ever been desperate like that? I have. I've been that desperate. Have you ever made deals with God in moments of desperation? I have. Maybe you've said things like this, Lord, save my marriage and I'll whatever, right? Or, Lord, heal my wife from cancer and I'll whatever that is. Lord, my child is a prodigal. He's left the church. He's left our family. If you'll just bring him back, I'll whatever. Ever heard the, the true statement that there's no atheists in foxholes? Sometimes desperation leads us to anticipation of God doing something amazing, something miraculous. I heard a statement from, a, from an old-time preacher by the name of, of Vance Haver, and this is what Dr. Haver said, he said, the tragedy of our time is that the situation is desperate, but the saints are not. <laughs> Did you hear what he said? The tragedy of our time is that the situation is desperate, but the saints are not. And that could not be a more truer statement for the American church. And perhaps we've not seen God move in our day and in our lives because we've not reached the point where Jesus is the only answer, the only hope, the only purpose, the only plan. Perhaps we're still trying to fix problems in our own way and fix them ourselves that we think is the best way. If you're desperate this morning, embrace it. If you're desperate, embrace it. Embrace it. Turn to Christ. That's exactly what Jarius did. And we discover what happens in just a moment. Christ, by the way, he never promises a life absent of desperate times. However, he does promise that he will be there when those desperate times come. And so this morning, if you find yourself in a desperate situation, embrace it and know that Jesus is right there with you, holding your hand, and in many cases, carrying you through the storm. In John 16, Jesus says this, I've said these things to you that in, in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but what? Take heart. Why? For I've overcome the world. What a great word. So this morning we're going to follow Jairus. We've met a desperate man. A desperate man trying to save his daughter. Look at Roman numeral two and probably on your outline three. Fill in these blanks. We encounter a diseased woman and a distracted Savior. A diseased woman and a distracted Savior. I read a story about an airplane that had been hijacked in Europe. 
This was several years ago as the hijacker made his demands to the pilot. Something really amazing happened. The pilot was very observant. This was a French flight, in fact. And while the hijacker did not speak French, the pilot spoke French, and most of the participants on the plane spoke French as well. And so the, the, uh, the hijacker was giving instructions to the pilot to share with the folks that were on the plane, and instead, the pilot came up with his own plan. And knowing that the hijacker couldn't speak French, he said these words in French to those that were on the plane. He said this, the hijacker has demanded that we land right now, and I'm going to do just that. Keep your seatbelts fastened and you'll be okay. As soon as we land, I'm going to slam on the brakes. And since the hijacker is standing in the aisle, this will rock him backwards. I will immediately hit the gas upon touchdown, and this will rock him forward. When he falls on his face, those of you in aisles one through ten are to pounce on him. I have instructed the flight attendants to use the coffee makers to heat boiling hot water. Once you have him down, they will pour the boiling water on him. By that time, I will have opened the cabin door and the police will apprehend him. And do you know what? The plan worked. It worked. When planes or cars or trains are hijacked, we usually don't see these situations as, as positives. In fact, when hijackings occur, they're usually filled with death and violence. Hijacking is never a good thing. What about when a Bible story gets hijacked? You ever thought about that? What happens when a Bible story gets hijacked? What happens when a miracle gets hijacked? Well, that's exactly what happens, by the way, in Luke chapter 8. A woman who has a blood disorder steals Jairus' miracle. She hijacks it from him. She takes it from him. As Jesus moves to the crowd, Jairus' house, towards his house, a woman with a blood disorder reaches out her hand and touches Jesus' garment. She believed, rightly so, that if she were just to touch the hem of Jesus' garment, that his power would flow through him, through his clothing, out of his clothing, into her hand, and heal her. That's some amazing faith. And she does just that. In the blink of an eye, this diseased woman who would have been an outcast in her society is suddenly and inexplicably healed in an instant. I couldn't help but feel for my brother Jarius, this guy who's desperate. I could only think about what he must have been thinking when that miracle had occurred. And Jesus stops, he looks around, he begins to ask questions. And again, every moment is important. Every second matters. Every minute is an eternity. And Jairus, his daughter, is hanging on by a very thin thread. And now Jesus has stopped on his way to his house. And he's looking around and he's asking questions. Can you imagine what Jairus is thinking? He's thinking, Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus, come on. My daughter is dying here. And when that miracle happens, can't you think, because I think Jairus is like a normal person like me and you, and he probably started thinking normal thoughts. He probably thought to himself when, when that miracle occurred, he probably stopped and was like, wait, was that my miracle? 
That was mine. That was my miracle. Why, why in the world did that happen? He probably thought to himself, maybe this is like a police officer's ticket. Like, does Jesus have a quota on miracles? Did we go over the quota? Right? Does he have any more left in the tank? Is there anything left for me? He probably thought, who is this lady after all? Who is this outcast who doesn't even belong in our society? Who is she that she would steal and hijack my miracle? By the way, we don't know much about her. Interestingly enough, the woman carried her disease. By the way, she carried this disease the same length of time that this little girl had been alive. And because of her disease, she was an outcast. She was a mess. And quite the opposite of the person of Jairus and this elite privilege that he was experiencing. There's three things I want you to take away. First, there's power to heal when one connects to Jesus. Write that down, by the way, on your outline, kind of off the side. There's power to heal when one connects to Jesus. There's power to heal. There's power to heal mentally. There's power to heal emotionally. There's power to heal spiritually. There's even power to heal physically. I've been doing ministry for 20 years, and I've seen people connect to Jesus and be healed in every possible way. I've seen people that, that battle mental illness that receive strength through coming to know Jesus. I've seen people who are alcoholics who encounter Jesus and they never pick up the bottle again. I've seen people who are eaten up with cancer who come to know Jesus and touched by Jesus and all of a sudden the cancer is gone. I've seen marriages that are breaking apart where the husband and wife, they come to know Jesus Christ and all of a sudden there's peace in the marriage again. There's power when one connects to Jesus, power for healing. And next, I want you to understand this, that Jesus is not just for the religious, the pious, or the prestigious. Jesus is for the outcast and the unsocial and everybody in between. Isn't it great that two people, really three, receive a miracle in this story? You've got an up, right? You've got an up and then you've got a down. You've got a positive and you've got a negative. You've got someone of great power and great prestige, and you've got someone that had been kicked out of the village. You've got someone that was viewed as a very religious person, and you've got someone that was viewed as a sinner, not deserving of any kind of help. And Jesus delivered a miracle to both. By the way, that should affect how we see people, shouldn't it? It should affect how we, how we view other people around us. It should change that we, that we shouldn't see the exterior of somebody or the gender of somebody or where someone has come from. We should see that person as made in God's image, a person that Jesus died for and a person that deserves respect, love, dignity, but also deserves more than that. That person deserves Jesus. And so, we know that Jesus is not just for the religious, but he's also for me. And lastly, I want you to remember this, that Jairus and this woman both displayed incredible faith. Jairus believed that Jesus could heal his daughter. This woman believed that Jesus could heal her. Incredible faith. Did this woman know what medical miracle Jesus was about to do in her life? Could she understand what was about to happen? The answer clearly is no. They just believed. 
They just believed. By the way, we display this type of faith all the time. We just believe in things, don't we? We just believe. Um, over the holidays, I got this little gift. Uh, I can't remember who gave it to me, but it's called an Amazon Alexa. Y'all have these things? Y'all have an Amazon Alexa? Maybe you don't. Maybe you've got like a Google thing. I don't know. So I, I get it out of the box, and I look at it, and I'm like, this thing kind of looks like a hockey puck. But it's supposed to do all this really great stuff. So I'm like, well, where do I wire it up? There's only one cord. It's just a power cord. So I plug in the power cord. I sit it down. Little blue ring goes. I'm like, that's kind of cool. And then it says, open your phone. I open my phone. I download an app. The app walks me through. And boom, boom, it's done. It's set up. And now I can spend money that I don't have by just telling it to, to buy things for me. It's incredible. And not only that, but I, I can say, Alexa, play this song. So like last night, I'm putting Jet to bed. And I said, Alexa, play a sleepy time song. I don't know. And all of a sudden, this sleepy time music comes on. It put me to sleep before it put Jet to sleep. It was phenomenal. Now, here's the thing. Do I understand how that thing works? Not, not at all. It just connects over the air magically to nothing. I don't have a clue as to how it works. I don't have a clue as to how half the stuff we use works, right? But in faith, I use it. And I believe it. And I think in faith, I can say this, and it does this. We display this type of faith all the time. And yet, when it comes to spiritual faith, we come to Jesus and we doubt him. We think, well, I don't know. I don't know if Jesus can really do that. Mm, I'm not sure. Maybe I need to go to, to, to this or to that or read a book or whatever. No, friend, Jesus has the power to heal. We just have to connect to him. In the correct way. In Colossians chapter 3, or excuse me, chapter 2, verses 13. Listen to what it says, this transformation that happens. I don't understand it, but I believe it. You were dead in your sins because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God did what? God made you alive in Christ and he forgave you all your sins. I don't know how that works. I don't know how I'm alive. I don't know how Jesus raises me up, but I believe it. I just believe it. In faith, I believe it. Next point. We see a desperate man, a diseased woman, a seemingly, a seemingly distracted Savior, by the way. He wasn't really distracted. There was a purpose and a plan. We have a discouraging message in verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came very coldly and said, your daughter is dead. Over the years, I've assisted my boys as they've played sports. I, I love being out there with them, and I love being with the other kids, by the way. I love all these other kids, and during that time, Angela and I have made some great friends with great parents, you know, like Todd, you know, who's coaching Jack in basketball. I just love meeting these family. Josh, you're kind of right there with me now. You're starting to branch out. You're not seeing all these people from church, but you're branching out. You're seeing all these people that don't come here and having an impact in their life, and it's really fun. I can remember when my oldest son, was playing in his first year of football. He was, he was seven at the time, 
at home, he, he played the part, by the way. He played the part. He had the helmet. You know, you get your helmet. He had your pads. And he even had that look. You know, when a little seven-year-old, as he's going out to play football, has that look. Kind of like that. He had the look. He looked like a football player. I was that dad, by the way, that was probably a little too much into it. Uh, I, I bought some tackling dummies, right? One of them was his younger brother, but we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> Parent of the year right here. We put them out in the backyard, and, and he would run around, and he would hit these pads. And I really thought that we had the second coming of Peyton Manning or Lawrence Taylor living in the backyard in Daphne, Alabama. I really believe that. I remember going to his first practice, and his coach, by, his, his coach is a guy named uh, Frank Pierce. Frank, by the way, comes to our church, baptized his son about a year ago, Christo. And I remember uh, he said something to me that I had never heard before, and chances are, probably, that I was bragging on how great my seven-year-old would be and how I had planned to carve a spot out for him in the NFL Hall of Fame. And Frank looked at me, and he kind of winked at me, and he said, Stuart, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Because <laughs> see, at that point, he had only hit tackling dummies. He had never actually been hit. You know what I mean? I think Mike Tyson may have repeated that after he uh, fought uh, Evander Holyfield. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And friends, what happens to you? What happens to you when life hits back? What happens to you when life hits back? When the plan you had doesn't work? When the outcome is not what you had hoped for? Jarius did everything right. He went to Jesus. It was a good thing to do. He had a plan. I'm going to bring him back to my house. And guess what happened? His daughter still died. The bottom line is that this man came to Jesus to have his daughter healed, and she passed away. For those of us who've made deals with God and saw the opposite result in what we're hoping for, this is for you. Remember those deals we made? Father, I want you to fix my marriage, and what happens? Your marriage ends in divorce. Father, I want you to heal my wife who's got cancer, and then your wife dies. Father, I want you to, to bring my prodigal son back home, and that son doesn't seem to ever come home. Remember those deals? It can be really discouraging. Friends, just the other day, I performed my first funeral of the year. <laughs> Oddly enough, we're two weeks into the new year, and I'm going to be performing two funerals. But I, I performed my first funeral of the year. We prayed and prayed for the healing and restoration of this man. And guess what? He still passed away. How do we make this work with our faith? How do we reconcile these issues where we ask God to do something, we believe in our hearts that he can do it, and it doesn't happen the way we want it to happen. I want to bring this up to you. First of all, death is not always the worst outcome. For the man who, who, who we prayed for and passed, I believe that God healed that man because this man was a believer. I believe that he was healed. I believe that he was changed. I believe that he was remade. His existence in heaven is the ultimate healing and the ultimate release that we could ever hope for or dream for. The same goes for those who know Christ and pass away. That's the hope and that's the promise and I truly believe that's the truth. 
Also, God uses discouraging news of life to create a a platform and a witness for the believer. I don't know if you kept up with college football this year. Did you remember seeing the story of the 24-year-old Purdue fan who went to Purdue? He was struck with cancer at the age of 15. Remember that story? It was an incredible story. And God used that disease and he used that cancer to lift up this young man and to lift up his family. I'll never forget the, the image of these Purdue football players walking in to Tyler's hospital room, gathering around him and him praying for them. That was an unbelievable story. Sometimes God allows negative circumstances to happen in our life because he knows we're strong enough to deal with it. And we know that he knows that we will take these horrible situations and use them as a platform to tell people about Jesus. Because there's one thing that we all can understand, and that is suffering. And God can use the platform of suffering to bring lots of people into heaven. One of my favorite stories is a story about Pete Maravich. Pete Maravich was probably the most prolific basketball player in college basketball history. He averaged 45 points a game in college when he played at LSU. By the way, 45 points with no three-point line. It's said that Pistol Pete would have averaged maybe close to 60 points a game if he would have actually had a three-point line to operate with. Pistol Pete was one of these guys that was obsessed with the game of basketball from the moment that he could dribble. And they said that he could do things with the basketball that still nobody in today's game can replicate. And Pistol Pete, his dad was his coach. While he was at LSU, his mom committed suicide. Terrible, tragic, and horrible. And it helped spiral Pistol Pete down this hole of darkness and sin that went with him through his NBA career. While he was successful in the NBA, Pete got addicted to alcohol and drugs. While he was in the NBA, his dad was struck in the ill with cancer. He cared for his dad. And close to his dad's passing, Pistol Pete began to ponder whether or not he should take his own life because he was so He was going down in such a a bad place. And so finally, right before he decided to take his own life, Pistol Pete got on his knees and said, God, if you're real, if you're real, I want you to save me. Jesus, I want you to step into my life. I want you to make me something different than I am today. I, I want you to make me something new. And do you know what happened? Pete connected. Pete connected to Jesus. He connected to Jesus in the correct way, humbly and repenting. And Pete had the power flow from Jesus right into his heart. And you know what Pete did? Pete traded a basketball for a Bible. And Pete began to preach and teach and share Jesus everywhere that he went, mostly with college athletes, high school athletes. He began to to go on crusades with Billy Graham, James Dobson, And Pete led literally hundreds of thousands of people to Jesus Christ. And Pete would always sign his autograph, Pistol Pete Maravich. 
And underneath it, he would sign Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Do you know what that verse says? It says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who's in heaven. Pete wanted to let his light shine. Now, sadly, we know the story about Pete Maravich. He was playing basketball up in Colorado. Pickup game. And he had a massive heart attack and died. When the doctors did the autopsy, they noticed that Pete was missing one of the real key central arteries that would run from his heart. And so when he died, they did that autopsy. They noticed that problem with his heart. And they said, you know, Pistol Pete shouldn't have even lived past the age of 20. And God gave him 20 more years. Now, what's really fascinating is my father-in-law loves Pistol Pete. My father-in-law, his life verse has always been Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. I had no idea why. My father-in-law has known me since I was 17 years old. And I've heard him say that verse over and over and over again until it's been seared into my mind. And it's also become my life verse. I share it all the time, having no idea that it came all the way from Pistol Pete Maravich. And friends, sometimes God allows negative things to happen to give us a platform to be a witness for Jesus Christ. When you get desperate, don't run from it. When the dark days come, embrace it. Look at Roman numeral five, the last point. We have a dazzling miracle in verse 54 and 56. But taking her by the hand, he called, child, arise. And her spirit returned. She got up at once, and he directed that she should be given something to eat. And her parents were amazed. Jesus accompanies, or excuse me, Jesus accompanies Jairus back to his home and arriving. They find this great commotion. People are gathered, weeping, wailing, beating themselves in grief. And Jesus steps inside and makes a startling statement. This child has not died. Rather, she is sleeping. On hearing this, the people laugh at Jesus. People still laugh at Jesus, right? And Jesus usually has, if not always, has the last laugh. Yet, using his God-given powers, Jesus shows that it's possible for people to be brought back from the brink of death, from death itself, just as they can be awakened from a deep sleep. He sends everybody out, and he says, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately she begins walking. Imagine the excitement that Jairus and his wife feel on seeing this and providing further evidence of her, uh, be, uh, of her animation that she's really alive. Jesus directs them to give her something to eat. So this morning, what's the takeaway here? I suppose it's this. The takeaway is this. Stay close to Jesus. Stay connected to Jesus. When trouble comes, stay close to Jesus. When life punches you in the mouth, when all of your plans fail, stay close to Jesus. When it seems that everyone else has got their miracle, but your miracle seems to be slow in coming, stay close to Jesus. When everything goes dark, when everything goes black, and you can't see anything any longer, stay close to Jesus. Notice that Jesus does not leave Jairus' side ever. I'm sure that his Pharisee friends laughed when his daughter died. Are you telling me, Jesus, that she's just asleep? Have you lost your mind? But Jairus never left Jesus. He stayed close 
to Jesus. Friends, write this down. Write this down and underline it. Stick with Jesus. Stick with Jesus. You can never go wrong by sticking with Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said what? He said, with man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are what? Possible with God. All things are possible with God. Amen? Amen. And Jesus turns our troubles into his testimonies. Let's bow our heads and we'll pray today.